0: welcome to the age of victoria podcast i'm your host chris fernandez packham thanks for tuning in if you enjoyed today's show take a minute to leave a review on itunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at age of victoria podcast at gmail.com. love to hear from you Before we start, I'd like to play you a promo clip from a good friend of the show, Noah, at the History of Vikings podcast. It's a great show. Check it out. Hi, guys. My name is Noah Tetzner, and I host a podcast called The History of Vikings. It has been nearly 1,000 years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still they continue to fascinate us. From hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes, the Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Yes, the legendary stories, vibrant myths, and rich history of the Vikings can still be seen today. Join me in rediscovering the lost stories of history's most legendary people on my podcast, The History of Vikings. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would be delighted if you check out my podcast, The History of Vikings. Welcome back, everyone. This has been a difficult episode to choose a topic for. This afternoon, I was happily sitting in an English country pub garden, enjoying the sunshine, and chatting with my wife about what I should record this afternoon. It should be a fairly obvious choice. After all, we've just finished the 100 days and now should be the time to leap in to the Congress of Vienna and talk about the politics and the reconstruction of Europe. And it was really the way to set the scene for how Europe and the world is going to be set up politically for the next sort of 48, 50 years. My wife said... No, that sounds boring. Nobody likes politics. And we chatted and I said, well, I have this other episode that I've got on the uh, on the go. I always have plenty of topics to talk about. And it's another exciting topic. It's got lots of human drama, all the content we like. And she said, you should do that one. It's just much more fun. And I thought to myself, oh, why do we get this idea somehow that the politics is, is boring or an afterthought? That politics isn't real history or real impact? As you might guess from that, we're going to be doing the politics today. And I think every European schoolchild should have learned about the politics we're covering in this episode, the Congress of Vienna. And that's why I'm going to tell you as well because it is possibly the most important series events in modern history that no one has ever heard of. In many ways, the Napoleonic Wars are only important because they led to this event. Still, as the Napoleonic Wars are almost absent from the British educational system, it isn't really surprising. In fact, Don't get me started on just how much history is missing from British education. It is quite shocking. Now, to give you an idea about what we're covering today, I'm going to read a quote from a book that has been hugely important in terms of sources on this. It's a quote from Rights of Peace by Adam Zamoyski. Quote, The reconstruction of Europe at the Congress of Vienna is probably the most seminal episode in modern history. Not only did the Congress redraw the map entirely, it determined which nations were to have a political existence over the next 100 years, and which were not. It imposed an ideology on a whole continent, derived from the interests of the four great powers. It attempted to set in stone the agreement between those powers, with the result that their expansion urges were deflected into Africa and southern Asia. Its consequences, direct and indirect include all that has taken place in Europe since, including aggressive nationalism, Bolshevism, fascism, the two world wars, and ultimately the creation of the European Union end quote. That strikes me as pretty important actually. and honestly, how many of us have heard of it or know what it was or what happened? We should. It is a fascinating tale in its own right. It's about who would rule France after the Napoleonic Wars. Who would rule Poland? Would there be a Poland? What about the Pope or the Prussians? What would they do? Who would control the Baltic or the Mediterranean? Who would end up in power? And who would end up dead? Would Europe continue to fight the wars against principalities and countries that had raged across it for centuries? Or would Europe turn its attention back out to the world, fighting its proxy wars? In other continents and on other oceans, politicians and kings squared off against each other. Devious spies and clever diplomats faced off against imperial generals or experienced statesmen. Flattery, bribery and corruption vied with high-minded principle. Hypocrisy warred with genuine optimism. Had they deposed a tyrant only to create new tyrannies? Clever, ruthless men like Talleyrand destroyed incriminating archives, attempting to shape history itself. This would make such an amazing TV series, just for a start. But we don't hear about it. Now, I have to say, I can't cover all the ins and outs of this. It is just too vast and too involved, and it would lead us so far into the woods, we might never find our way back to the path again. The Congress isn't really a single one-off event on a set date. Rather, it was a series of positions and negotiations of the great powers of Europe to decide who and what would be allowed to exist and hold power. So before we plunge in, I want to give you some warnings. First is we must try and put our... 21st century baggage at the door. I know you don't think that you have any, that you are here as a rational and completely impartial observer. Well, I'm sorry, but you aren't any more than I am or anyone else is. We all have a set of cultural biases and assumptions that we carry with us. One of the biggest is our modern instinctive view. There are some universal human rights and moral standards that are so obvious that they are clearly the good that we should all be aiming at. Even if your view of human rights as a term is purely negative, you probably wouldn't disagree that people have the right to to life, liberty and some form of self-governance. The precise form liberty or freedom takes to you might vary but that at least seems plain. If you want to understand the actions of the Congress you need to understand that this view is extremely modern. Even the concept of war crimes as we understand them simply didn't exist until after World War II. In 1815 liberty was much more of a concept that meant justice under known law and custom rather than the more libertarian concept of liberty we have today. The idea of the right of self-determination based on the will of the general population could be seen as a dangerous affront to liberty, as it was felt the general will could change quickly and even carelessly. Liberty was guaranteed by the fact that it was made up of long-established laws and customs which everyone knew and had accepted for generations. To say you could have a revolution to give liberty to the people seemed to some of the governing class of the time an oxymoron. By throwing away time-honoured systems, you were taking away people's liberties and securities and replacing them with anarchy. Changes in the status of nations or territories were supposed to be by treaty, and these treaties usually had to respect established liberties or customs, to be successful otherwise they risk sparking revolt this is a big reason napoleon had such a problem dealing with the allies they saw him as not playing by the rules of the existing game he and the french revolution itself were fundamentally overturning the board another piece of baggage you probably have is that you might think that honor is just a word a abstract that you can ignore at a whim. If you make a promise on your honour today it means essentially nothing. That wasn't the case for most of history. At the end of the Napoleonic Wars honour was as real to a gentleman as a credit rating is to us today. Neither are real in the sense of being a thing you can touch. They're both abstracts yet both can seriously affect real life. If a gentleman gave his word of honour or swore on his honour it was taken very seriously This might sound a little crazy, but as relationships were more face-to-face and personal, honour was a way of codifying and exercising power without it being overly oppressive or requiring complex laws or contracts this was in a strange way a big problem Napoleon had the Allies refused to recognise him as a gentleman and he was not especially honest in his own in many situations this made the Allies feel that he didn't have the honour required for treatment as an equal the importance of honour was that it allowed value to be assigned to individuals but to also let them carry out complex transactions with little formality as a nobleman you didn't have to get a lawyer and a set of documents and witnesses to carry out every deal or uphold every agreement you could swear on your honour that you would return a horse for example that had been loaned to you along with a thousand guineas and it was seen as a given in some ways it almost harks back to older traditions of oath taking or even tribal honour systems insults to personal honour were therefore not just abstract they could have real world consequences. A man who was called a liar could lose honour. This could translate to reduced social standing that had real knock on effects it might be harder to get an income or it might reduce the chances of marriage or getting promotions who would promote a man known to be dishonourable after all this could even affect children a disgrace serious enough could blacken the whole family's name reducing the marriage prospects of the children which was of critical importance perhaps even to their very survival honour had to be polished and guarded carefully. Insults to honour demanded a personal response, even to the point of a duel. This concept even scaled up to nations and principalities in a way. A nation that was considered to be acting honourably would probably be better treated, even if unsuccessful, than a more successful but less honourable one perhaps. Of course, at both the personal and national level, Self-interest was still a driving concern. Honour didn't require complete stupidity or the abandonment of common sense. Another piece of bond baggage we will need to get rid of is the idea that the nation-state is the fundamental political entity. It certainly wasn't in 1815. Nations did exist, but they did so alongside principalities, protectorates, independent territories, crown dependencies, duchies, confederacies, alliances, leagues, city-states and empires. Allegiance was often much more personal and societies much more structured. Okay, for example, think of it like having a patch of lands ruled by a king called Bob. King Bob doesn't own the lands, and lands themselves aren't necessarily next to each other. Instead, each land has a duke or a cardinal who owe King Bob fealty. Together, they make up the glorious kingdom of Miniononia. In turn, they have a load of subjects that owe them allegiance and work land for them. Perhaps they sometimes get together to have a parliament of some kind to advise King Bob probably King Bob dislikes this Parliament and his overmighty lords and merchants who try to constrain his theoretically absolute power he therefore cracks down on two of his dukes who seem to be getting a little too big for their boots one of the disgruntled dukes, switches his allegiance to nearby King Stuart. King Bob is outraged, especially when the Duke pays lucrative rents to King Stuart in return for a mercenary company. King Bob and King Stuart soon end up at war, with troops raised from the various territories that owe them fealty, or allegiance in some way. At the end of some indecisive fighting King Bob recognises the switch of the Duke and his lands to King Stuart whilst King Stuart gets King Bob with an island in the Caribbean that comes with bananas neither king is at real risk of losing his throne and the mutual treaty would probably be a dull transfer arrangement The individual customs of the towns and cities within the territories would be largely unchanged. Neither king is in any way interested in democracy, and the rebel duke certainly wasn't a champion of the people. Nor, as you can see, is there a particular nation-state here going to war against another nation-state. Nor are the people expected to be loyal to an abstract entity of a nation-state. Perhaps if the war had gone on too long the kings might have aligned themselves with a more powerful political entity like the Russian Empire or the Holy Roman Empire. Now imagine one day Napoleon bursts onto the scene. He moves swiftly into the area sweeping aside the patchwork armies of the two kings. He swiftly deposes both of them, abolishes the old feudal order and sets up a more modern rational state. A lot of old Town councils and regional aristocrats lose power and land that they've held for centuries. Long established and restrictive guilds are abolished. A town might find itself grouped into a region created by merging its territories with a hated rival. People who believed themselves independent towns found themselves part of new political entities created by Napoleon. The way of doing things that they had grown up with was gone. For some people, this was a huge step forward. Many of the old medieval guild systems were highly restrictive. The Jewish populations in particular benefited immensely from Napoleon. He was shocked and horrified to see Jews in ghettos forced to wear the Star of David it drove him into a rage when he came across it he acted swiftly to abolish the ghettos and free the Jewish population so from certain points of view Napoleon could be a liberator but he was also a destroyer and these reorderings of territory usually came with demands for money, loot and manpower for the French armies let's pause then and think about what a tidal wave To the political and religious order Napoleon really was. Instead of kings and dukes and emperors fighting limited wars with territories moved. By treaty and agreement, he simply smashed the opposition, dominated those he found useful, unseated those he found useless, and swept away the old political orders. He also instituted religious freedoms that shocked conservative and Catholic leaning Europe. This was essentially a twin assault on the very fabric of the rulers and their empires across Europe. By sweeping away the old feudal structures, he was attacking the pillars. A divine kingship aristocracy and ancient custom by attacking the catholic church he was attacking the religious glue often held these disparate territories together to the british establishment this was a direct attack on the order of government and society itself already the poor and starving in the english countryside rural ireland and the recently cleared scottish highlands were pressing for reform for work for food. How was the British state to respond? Certainly not by giving more power to the people and reforming government supposing the British population started to rebel like the American colonies had. What if they too declared no taxation without representation? Prince Regent absolutely wasn't having that nor were the aristocracy. Britain was anxious. The royal family was not well regarded and a key part Queen Victoria's rise to immense power and prestige was her ability to turn the page on the actions of the royal family during this period. Essentially, she demonstrated she was fundamentally not like the Georges or their relatives towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars questions facing the great powers were what should be the political shape of post-war Europe and what shape should the world be and what kind of arrangement should be made in Europe for the future to prevent further wars the continent was sick of war after decades and decades and determined to have some kind of peace For Russia, the answer seemed obvious. Tsar Alexander considered himself chosen by God to crush Napoleon and the French, to personally lead mankind into a new era of peace. A balance of power between all nations was needed, so that no one in power could dominate the other, making war too costly, with the Tsar seeing himself as the supreme arbiter of Europe, and the Russians as the main power brokers. This would naturally require Russian power to increase especially out towards Constantinople and the Baltics but also into Poland. The Tsar planned to keep large chunks of it for Russia. That was really the main reason the Russians were so supportive of the Prussians. The Russians also wanted to absorb Saxony which had been part of the Holy Roman Empire till 1806 but in 1814 to 1815 was under Prussian occupation. Its fate was was one of bitter dispute during the Congresses. For the Austrians, this was not an attractive option. For them, a strong Prussian-Austrian alliance was needed to buffer against Russia and France and... Austrian territories, or an Austro-Franco alliance with a much weakened France buttressing Austria. Austrians were lucky enough to have the brilliant diplomat Metternich, born to an old aristocratic family. He was intelligent, good at setting a goal and doggedly pursuing it. He studied philosophy, law and diplomacy and he had a talent with people and getting them to pursue his goals whilst believing them to be their own, he was incredibly charming and very sociable. These are all immense assets to a statesman conducting international diplomacy. By 1806, he was appointed as Austria's ambassador to France. This gave him an excellent opportunity to study Napoleon first-hand and he has provided us with some amazing insights. By 1809, he had risen to be Austria's foreign minister. He was keen to keep Austria safe and powerful, even if it meant biding his time he said quote, i foresaw that neither napoleon nor his undertakings would escape the consequences of rashness and extravagance the when and the how i cannot pretend to determine thus my reason pointed out to me the direction i had to take in order not to interfere with the natural development of the situation and to keep open for austria the chance which greatest of all powers the power of circumstances might offer sooner or later under the strong government of its monarch the much-threatened prosperity of the empire." End quote. Notice that his worldview, as expressed here, is purely aristocratic. He has a strong reputation, even today, as a great foreign minister and diplomat. The Journal of International Relations described him as, quote, "...undoubtedly one of the most influential yet controversial figures of European international relations. In many respects, he was before his time pursuing a realistic strategy of power politics, Decades earlier than this approach dominated the foreign policies of peer countries. Metternich faithfully served the Habsburg Empire for 47 years as its envoy in Saxony, ambassador to Paris and finally foreign minister. Throughout this period, he self-righteously followed a conservative ideology, attempting to ensure stability and the balance of power on the continent. His ultimate accomplishment was indisputably the Congress of Vienna, which prevented European war for nearly 30 35 years and forestalled a major conflict for 99 years. Overall, Metternich was extremely effective in preserving Austria's power, which resulted from his ability to manipulate cunningly the events of 1812 to 1815 by temporarily preserving neutrality, tactically leading peace negotiations. End quote. He doggedly played one side off against the other, always preserving the appearance of neutrality or support France while secretly negotiating with the Allies. He was keen that Austria wouldn't be condemned for breaking agreements with France but at the same time He made sure that the French received little active support. His guiding light remained the creation of a balance of power in Europe. This status quo was vital to Austria, not only for keeping the peace, also for keeping a very disunited population together. His talent and role in laying the diplomatic groundwork to defeat Napoleon was actually recognised even by the British. King George IV paid artist Sir Thomas Lawrence 300 guineas Paint Metternich's portrait, a staggering sum. On the downside, he was incredibly vain, somewhat pompous, careful not to overcommit himself if he didn't have an escape route. A womaniser, apt to go into mawkish declarations of love and devotion, he had a passionate affair with Wilhelmina, Duchess of Sagan, and sister to Dorothea, Duchess of Dino, who was, at the same time, having an affair with Talleyrand. He might not have been overwhelmingly intelligent, but he was the perfect diplomat. Charm, farsightedness, ruthlessness, talent, and shrewd wisdom. He would dominate European politics into the 1840s, and is well worth remembering. Yes, he will come up on the test later. For the Germans and Prussians, the first true stirrings of greater German nationalism could be seen. Fiery passion of Heinrich von Stein was a blood-curdling call to arms that linked nationalism not just to territory or an individual ruler or a particular system of government, but to an abstract concept of a greater Germany. Stein was a former knight of the Holy Roman Empire. He challenged the Prussian King Frederick's alliance with Napoleon. Stein was an uptight moralist and energetic civil servant who became fiercely nationalistic. Whilst he wanted to see a unified, modern Germany, he recognised only Prussia had the strength and unity to build on. This brought him into conflict with the weak King Frederick. By a strange quirk of fate, Napoleon recognised his immense administrative talents, but wasn't aware of Stein's fanatical German nationalism. So Napoleon, in a stroke of irony, forced King Frederick to accept Stein as his principal administrator. Stein was soon implicated, in anti-French activity and he was forced to flee to Austria before getting sanctuary with Tsar Alexander The two men clicked and formed a powerful working relationship when the Russians swept westward. After the French retreat of 1812, Stein was put in charge of the German territories. He soon clashed with the Prussian king, especially as Stein not only began reorganising territories to further German reunification, also began calling for a bloody war of vengeance and reprisal, even against Germans who had joined the French. Finally, pressure from Stein and the Tsar resulted in Prussia switching ally with russia against france but the german states remained in turmoil with stein making appeals to the people and sweeping away the established order in many ways reminiscent of napoleon to an extent that struck some observers as being highly hypocritical so what does this mean for us well i'm only giving you a very brief sketch here but you can see how at the tail end of the napoleonic wars future of europe was not only unsettled but incredibly complicated i could spend show off the show going through all the various changing circumstances. But what I want to get across is just how convoluted and chaotic Europe actually was. The aristocracy were desperately trying for stability, but not in an easy nation state way that we would understand today. And the end result was more akin to putting a lid on a pressure cooker. So much hinged on the outcome of the situations of Prussia and the German states. As I said, the Tsar wanted himself to be seen as the supreme liberator of Europe, with the right to settle any European affairs into a balance of power to eliminate all future wars, with Russia as preeminent, Russia would need to acquire immense territories in the Balkans, Poland and the Crimea. The Austrians wanted a strong core of Central Europe that was free of foreign influence and this would require Prussia and Austria to act as strong Central guarantors of and protectors of the region which would also require a strong France and a strong Russia to counterbalance each other. An invasion of France and dismantling her was therefore not something Metternich would wish to see. It was therefore diametrically opposed the Russian position of the Tsar, but also opposed to the extreme German nationalism of Stein, not only because a unified Germany would clearly be a dominant power in Europe, but because if Germany marched into France, or the Prussians marched into France to seek retribution and dismantle the French after Napoleon fell, then this would throw out Metternich's scheme a counterweight to Russia. Those of you who are reading ahead probably able to see the glimpses of the causes of World War I and II already. The history of Europe since 1812 is almost the story of the rise of Germany. Also, whilst a peaceful balance of power sounds nice and a good goal to work for, it requires a large degree of Fixed static politics. Reform and change is not well suited to a balance of power system. That might be fine to the ruling elite and seem a self evident good, but for the losers in that system it was a horrific prospect as change and reform was ruled out. Metternich also had to accept that the real potential wild card in all of this European diplomacy was Britain. Metternich initially wanted France to make a peace settlement that would keep Napoleon in power but without his military empire. After the disaster the French had suffered in Russia well surely Napoleon would have sought a good peace with the deal slightly in Austria's favour but Napoleon was unwilling to negotiate except on his own terms since he recognised his power base was primarily built on his military victories. Metternich was secretly negotiating with the Allies at this point, anyway. Still, a peace would have actually worked out well for France. If before 1812 she had withdrawn from Spain, parts of Italy and the smaller states kept her limited territory on gains along the Rhine, the loot of empire then maybe France would have come out of the Napoleonic Wars incredibly well. Napoleon could then have restructured France how he wanted and focused perhaps on building a long-range navy that could have challenged Britain and the wider world in the arenas of trade and empire building. And Russia would have been kept in check by the prospect of future conflict, Austria and France, if they stepped out of line. Napoleon was never going to agree to terms though. And Metternich had no desire to replace a powerful France under Napoleon with a powerful Russia under Tsar Alexander. But for any peace to work, the British needed to agree. British were the great financiers and power brokers of the Napoleonic Wars. This was vexing to Metternich, who considered the British self-interested, arrogant in the extreme and of only marginal importance in Europe outside of bankrolling wars. The British hated the French, with a passion born of centuries of war in general and a fury for France, effectively causing Britain to lose the American War of Independence in a humiliating fashion and nearly sparking a chain reaction that almost saw Britain lose her empire face an uprising in Ireland and nearly be invaded. Added on top of that was the British aristocracy's absolute loathing, everything to do with the French Revolution in general, and Napoleon in particular. It was fair to say, I think, although this is only my personal view, that British-French relations between 1770 and 1815 was bad as they have been at any other point in history nearly. They wouldn't even talk to Metternich and they viewed the Austrians as pro-French, despite all evidence to the contrary. The British did view the Russians as natural allies, which was awkward for the Russians, who viewed the British as supreme rivals. Some Russians were so worried about British naval power, they were hesitant to pursue the retreating French in 1812 because of concerns about British power in the Mediterranean and South Asia. The British appointed new Foreign Secretary in 1812 Robert Stuart, Viscount Castlereagh, to deal with the diplomatic situation. He was a clever man persistent, highly talented he was dominant in British politics both in England and Ireland he was able to quickly identify problems and describe them clearly a vital trait in diplomatic circles. He was not without his flaws though, he had no experience with diplomacy he was entirely ignorant of European affairs. He was dogmatic in his political principles, adhering strictly to those of his political ride on William Pitt, and he was supposed to be very unimaginative. I'm not entirely sure how to square this view, which comes across quite strongly in some sources, with other sources, where historians have commented on his immense ambition, his complexity, and the long levity of his diplomatic systems. He was involved in suppressing a revolt in Ireland that was leaning towards a revolution, it forced him to bend his reformist principles. So whilst he acted with mercy as far as he could, and he pushed for Catholic emancipation, he came out of Ireland with a reputation for dishonesty. His private life was scandalous, and he had wounded a fellow cabinet minister in a duel over alleged political betrayals. He refused to trust Metternich, as far as he could throw him at first. Whilst on the one hand that was understandable, on the other it was a pretty poor way to start a diplomatic revolution. Primary focus of the British remained trade, industry, overseas expansion and an obsession with Ireland. They had initially only entered the wars when the French got control of Antwerp, threatening British naval interests. Some sources suggest that if Napoleon had left the Northern Channel ports alone, it is possible the British would have ignored him, whilst taking in French refugees, and maybe paying for the odd armed uprising. The British often bankrolled wars, but didn't put troops on the ground until comparatively late. They had a small operation in Portugal, which got larger in Spain, but they didn't suffer anything like the other continental powers fighting Napoleon. Although they did often bankroll conflicts, since they could maintain a smaller standing army at home because of the geographical isolation and by spending money on supporting troops of other nations or principalities on the continent she was saving her own army from having to be increased and fight directly. This caused a lot of resentment in Europe where they felt Britain was making bank by snatching up French ships, confiscating trade goods and seizing French colonies whilst not taking any risks herself. She was seen as profiting from the war, investing in prolonging it and getting rich off the conflict. A good little war indeed, as they say. But this did mean that despite bankrolling the coalitions and her intense commitment to the wars against France... When Castlereagh was appointed, Britain was actually, diplomatically, quite isolated. In fairness, Britain had suffered a run of military disasters recently, and was focused on securing her empire in India and the Mediterranean. If France would kindly not invade her, or cut off her trade with the continent, then the British had other things to worry about, such as the war with America that was going on, no matter how much most of them loathed the French personally. Castlereagh had thrown himself into coalition building with vigor in 1813 and it is largely thanks to him that the initial alliance was signed with russia he quickly grasped the importance of the principle that members of the coalition couldn't sign separate peace agreements with napoleon since that risked weakening them and isolating britain this of course meant that many secret treaties were signed behind the scenes russia was particularly keen to carve up chunks of Poland and retain it after the war by aftering Prussians German territories in place of the Polish ones that Russia had seized from Prussia. This should give you a very good hint. Of why Napoleon had a lot of dedicated Polish troops during his career. Including one of his finest marshals. Napoleon couldn't create an independent Polish kingdom. But he came close. The British position remained highly intransigent. They wanted Napoleon gone. This wasn't negotiable. They didn't have any real interest in the complexities of the European situation, in the way that Austria was invested. Metternich spent much of 1813 to 1814 playing a careful balancing game, keeping Austria out of direct confrontation with France, also keeping the Russian and Prussians in the fight but stopping them getting too powerful until he could broker a peace on Austrian terms. This made him deeply unpopular with many Austrians. He was enraged when some of them tried to drum up support for a guerrilla insurrection in Italy against the French, and he was exasperated when he caught a British agent trying to smuggle funds to the insurgents in Austria. He kindly returned the courier to Castlereagh and suggested better diplomacy in future. It was especially worrying for him As the French were beginning to suspect, he was playing both sides and were keeping him under observation. 1813-1814 to passed in a strange whirl of war and armistice, careful moves shaken by disasters. Napoleon seemed both brilliant and inept. Plumsy worked magic for both sides, then bad luck dashed, careful arrangements. Napoleon's declining fortunes eventually led him to recognise an independent and neutral Switzerland. A historic event, but one designed to secure french borders the swiss had been very favorable to napoleon especially after he swept away a lot of the old feudal chains on the people making them free and equal citizens before the law Tsar alexander was mostly happy with swiss neutrality and didn't want it violated whilst metternich busied himself trying to create a revolt in switzerland to restore the ancient regime causing the Tsar to erupt in fury. Metternich didn't care and wasn't about to throw out the Allied invasion plans simply to keep the Tsar happy or to respect the infant Swiss nation. So he arranged for the Allied attack on France to continue through Switzerland and this would help cause a permanent enmity. It also had the by-product of making the fanatical Stein see Austrian influence in Germany as being untrustworthy and dangerous. German morals. It strengthened his views that only a pure, unified Germany was acceptable. I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. Well, this is great. Is it really influencing the Victorians? Well, yes. Yes, absolutely it was. You can already see that the building blocks for the rise of Germany are being put in place. The mutual resentments on the continent. That will lead to wars, alliances and the scramble for colonies overseas were all being mixed into the brew here. Poland hadn't even been deposed in 1813 but you can see the outline of some of the causes of World War 1 and 2. I think I should emphasise again that a lot of the nations in Europe really aren't anything like as old as they claim. And a lot of the borders are a bit more arbitrary than they would like to admit. With the exception of France, Portugal, the United Kingdom, Armenia and Russia, a lot of European nations have not had their borders or citizenships well defined for a very long time at all. And they have all been very changeable. This set up post-war world, would mean that absence of conflict in Europe and the balance of power meant that the nation states that were growing in power could no longer expand within Europe and had to look overseas for their expansion. The natural place came to be in South Asia or in Africa because expansion in Europe was suddenly no longer possible. So in many ways, this would help focus Europe outwards in the age of the Victorians and mean that Britain, instead of having to worry about continental wars, would now be able to focus on her wider world interests. And this is a huge step change. European stability had an immense impact, but it also meant that democratic reform or political reform or social reform were all to be kept under wraps for this early period. And again, this would help push both pressure for political reform during the early Victorian era and some of the mass migrations that would help shape the world. Eventually the manoeuvrings had to come to a head. Metternet had three of the heads of state in one place so the coalition could make quick decisions. But as usual, the British were absent. British law of the time prevented the king or prince regent travelling overseas. Unlike the Tsar or King of Prussia, the British didn't even have a representative and viewed everything Metternich did as dishonest, especially as the always efficient British spy network had got access to all of Metternich's secret papers. In fairness to Metternich, he somehow had to hold together the largest diplomatic Alliance in the history of Europe and keep it pointed at the greatest military commander of modern history, despite all the wildly differing agendas. Still, there was one brutal fact that was compelling the British to actually get more involved in diplomacy. They had already been shocked and disbelieving when British envoys had found Europeans didn't view British goals and actions in a favourable and friendly way as was assumed in London. As is a repeated failing in British history, British statesmen acted in what they thought was a genuine and noble way and simply couldn't understand how anyone else could have a different view of their actions. The British seemed incapable of seeing things from someone else's point of view, but the brutal fact I mentioned was something that always forces people to concentrate, and that's money. In the twenty years of war, they had cost the British over seven hundred million pounds. That was a staggering sum of money in eighteen fifteen, absolutely staggering. And this this is more, from what I can see of my reading, than they had spent actually during World War One. It showed just how enormously wealthy the British actually were. But a lot of this was the result of Britain able to almost militarise the national debt. Even the seemingly unlimited wealth trade, slavery, looting, coal, the spinning jenny, the Industrial Revolution, the cotton mills had limits. War with America, with France, and with many other powers was just becoming too expensive. So, in December 1813, Castlereagh and his family battle storms and snow to cross the channel and arrive in the Netherlands. Metternich had previously wanted the British to get more involved in European diplomacy and he was about to get his wish. He probably regretted it sometimes. For the first time in a long time the British were about to really flex their muscles on the continent and start the New World Order and the British would become supreme power payers in the European Order for years to come. British vision on the continent might have been limited but when it came to the wider world the British were well aware that they were the supreme naval power. This in turn made them the supreme European power in the wider world. The United States was still an infant nation with immense potential but a very small navy. The British had recently conquered Sri Lanka then known as as Ceylon. They were the main power in India and the elimination of the French meant the riches and resources of the entire Indian subcontinent were laid before them. European rulers were envious and Indian rulers like the rulers of the state of Mysore who followed events in Europe would be very aware that the British were now the dominant European power. The network of naval bases would allow them to intensify that hold and better still for the British there was now no French French naval action in the Far East to impede trade, and this would play into the hands of the East India Company. Nothing would persuade any British statesman that any post war settlement should restore French influence in India. Please note that when I'm talking about India here, I'm using a very modern shorthand. India of the early 19th century was made up of a number of proud states or empires with some long histories. The Sikh state of the Punjab, in particular, would demonstrate a military capacity on par with the British and the Sikh soldiers were some of the finest and bravest in the world. With France's overseas ambitions destroyed and most continental powers focusing on the continent the principal points of interest for the British in Europe remained the Mediterranean and the entrance to the Black Sea. These were of course of great concern to Russia, which wanted civilian and military shipping access to the Mediterranean. And you might notice that this remains a thread in 20th century history, and to some extent, even in modern Russian relations. This would impact on the ailing Ottoman Empire and further complicate matters. Naturally, the Austrians were concerned as Russian expansion on the shores of the Black Sea and Crimea would impact their territories in the Balkans. Battlestar Galactica fans at this point might be tempted to say all this has been before and will be again. I hope you are beginning to see that European diplomacy can become very tangled very quickly. Mutual distrust, wildly different goals, mismatched ambition and resources, plus concepts of national honour meant that things were going to be really tricky. You can see why the British appointing someone like Castlereagh with no knowledge or experience of Europe could be exasperating to the other parties. But for now, I think we've had a real belter of an episode. There's a huge amount of background information I've given you here. And next time, we will deal with the actual nuts and bolts of events and look at some of the people who are involved in a bit more detail I just want to say thank you everyone for listening I really appreciate it so much and I also want to say a big thank you to everyone who's left a review I just love hearing from you all I want to say a special thank you to Rob C who has left a lovely review to Lukey I think that's how you say it I'm not quite sure Thanks. I'm really glad you enjoyed the Big Ben episode. Really appreciate the review. And also, uh, John Douglas from the UK. Again, really glad you liked the podcast. Thanks ever so much for the review. I'm hoping to get a mini-sode out sometime soon. And I'm looking into upgrading my hosting a bit so that I can load more episodes up each month. And for those of you who are particularly, I don't know what the word is, nerdy, geeky, obsessed with strange details, I have put my privacy policy post-GDPR up on the website. Okay, thanks ever so much for listening. I've got some great stuff coming up. We'll do the rest of the Congress of Vienna in the next main episode. We've got some fantastic topics to cover after that. I also would really recommend you check out the History of Vikings podcast, which I played the promo of at the beginning of the episode. Great show, really good fun. Looking forward to doing a special episode with Sean Waldrick from the American History Podcast covering the American War of Independence. I think it's going to be great. OK, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions, or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.